Good morning, everyone. Beautiful day, hey? Doesn't get any better than this. For those of you who don't know me, I am Micah. I see a few faces that I've never met before. I hope to meet you after our time together. It's a, a joy to have you here. You're welcome here. We're, we're excited that you're here. We hope to connect with you more so. We've been walking through a, a Bible study, Bible survey in the book of Hebrews. And the passage we're coming up to this morning is a very interesting one. And it's reminded me of a few various stories in my life because uh, Hebrews, our passage this morning, brings up some stories of people who we knew were walking with the Lord and then all of a sudden they hit some tragedy or trauma or existential crisis and they end up walking away from God. Does anyone know someone like that who, who knew God at one point but ended up walking away? I know I'm going to get serious now just to warn you all. <laughs> uh, I remember my first roommate in Bible college. Who remembers their first roommate? Was it a good roommate or a bad roommate? If they're here, you probably shouldn't answer, but uh, it, it was a really good roommate I had. It was pretty fascinating because both of us actually knew each other from a city called Prince George, and he moved away when I was in grade 11. And both of us were non-Christians in high school, so we got into a lot of trouble together, went down a lot of bad paths. And so that's the context in which we knew each other. And lo and behold, I came to faith um, right after high school. I sort of had an existential crisis, which brought me to faith. And he in Grand Prairie started dating a Christian girl, and she brought him to faith. And neither of us knew that each other had become Christians. Neither of us knew that we were going to go to Bible college. And guess where we end up finding ourselves as roommates? <laughs> it was pretty wild. Uh, God definitely had a plan and a purpose in that. We went through that first year together as roommates with an open and honest conversation because we both knew each other's past and histories. And we had the joy of doing discipleship together and asking all the deep questions of life and pondering it together. And then I was baptized when I was 19, and a couple years later, I baptized him and his wife. And it was my very first baptism, it was a joy. And I got to see them flourishing in the faith, growing in the faith. And then a few years later, um, what ended up happening is he ended up having an affair on his wife, and his wife had an affair with him, and they both walked away from the faith. And you begin to ask questions of why. And you begin to ask questions of what could have been. You begin to ask questions of where is God in all of this? And I'm sure many of you have those stories as well. Maybe it was your kids. Maybe it's been close friends. Maybe it's been family members where you walked a spiritual journey with them, and then all of a sudden they weren't on that journey anymore. And the, the passage we're going to deal with in Hebrews deals with a lot of those types of questions uh, of what does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to diligently pursue him in all aspects of life? What does it mean to persevere in our faith? These are very important questions for us to ask. And, and I know that when we, we look at this passage, if you see on your paper, the title this morning is Jesus is greater than our unbelief. Amen? Amen. 
We all struggle with doubts at times. We all struggle with different aspects of life that burden us. We, we struggle with many aspects that could draw us away from God. And yet, as Melissa reminded us in prayer this morning, our hope is in that we have a God who pursues us, a God who loves us, a God who is gracious and merciful to us. Amen, church? That is our hope. And so I want to walk through this passage in Hebrews together to hear what God has to speak to us today from his word. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verse 11, and we're going to be into chapter 6, verses 12. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them up, and we're going to, we're going to process this passage together. So let me read Hebrews chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 11. Verse 11 says, we have much to say about this. And what's he saying we have much to say about? Last week we talked about how Jesus is the greatest priest. In other words, he is the one that opens up a relationship and mediates so that we can be restored to our creator. So he says, we have much to say about this. But it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to what? Understand. Have you ever tried to teach your kids something and they just start running away from you and have no care in the world about what you're trying to teach them, right? They don't care at all. They don't seek to understand. They're not trying to listen. And so the first concept is that you're, you're no longer trying to understand. Verse 12, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And so he's saying there's a problem in the church right now. He's saying that the problem in the church is that there's a lot of people who don't understand the process of maturity in the Christian faith. Where they've hung around the church for a while, and yet they're not understanding the full implications of what it means to worship Jesus and follow Jesus. And so in this context, many of them were resorting back to Judaism or understanding that as the foundation for their belief in religion. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, you need to understand the depths of who Jesus is. You need to understand the greatness of who Jesus is. You need to follow him and ponder him into maturity and solidity of thought. And yet this text tells us that all they wanted to do was drink milk. Now, I'm sure a lot of you can remember, and maybe you're experiencing right now, those days where all your baby wants is to drink milk. We are in that phase right now with Alleluia. We are slowly trying to wean her off, and it is impossible. I'm sure even this morning you'll probably hear some little kid yelling for milk, and it's going to be her. We're trying to wean her off during the day. We're trying to wean her off during the night, but it just hasn't been successful thus far. She just still cries for milk every instant of every day because that's what she thinks she needs, right? 
That's what she enjoys. It, she finds it nourishes her. She likes the taste. It comforts her. Yet us as parents, what do we see? Can she survive on milk for the rest of her life? No. Not only will her teeth rot, but there's a lot of other issues that come along with it. And so we're trying to wean her away from those things and actually give her a sophisticated, sophisticated taste of life, right? Could you imagine this life if all you had was milk for the rest of your life? That would be a horrible existence, would it not? There's so much more taste to enjoy in this world. And the writer of Hebrews is saying it's very similar with our spiritual journey. We can so easily become contented and satisfied with very minimal understanding of who God is and a very minimal life following after who God is. And he's saying that at this point in your spiritual journey, you shouldn't be acting like infants anymore. You should be grown up to the point where you should be doing what? What is the verb that he used? You should become teachers. You should be teaching. In other words, you should be so mature in your faith at this point that you should know it so well that you can instruct it to others. And, and you know what? The, the problem that the, the church here faced is that a, a problem that we don't deal with anymore today? Do we still deal with this problem today? <laughs> and we can confess that all in our own lives, can't we? It doesn't matter if you're old or young in that sense, but, but it, we can all answer, none of us are at where we want to be in our spiritual journey. None of us are as mature as we long to be. None of us are as devoted to Jesus as we long to be. None of us are obedient to Jesus as we long to be. All of us deal with some sense of unbelief and doubt and struggle and hardship and failures and flaws. Can I get an amen to that? A little confession time, but what's our hope? Our hope that even in the spite of that, our God is good to us. Even in spite of that, Jesus is greater than those experiences. And so he's saying, you should be able to teach about righteousness, distinguishing good from evil. And here's this concept of righteousness. It's used in a variety of contexts in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, righteousness, you guys know my favorite definition comes from the Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkey. And he says, righteousness in the Old Testament context is someone who is willing to disadvantage themselves for what? Does anyone remember? For the advantage of others. So a righteous person is someone who is willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage someone else. On the other hand, an unrighteous person, and this is what Andrew was talking about in Psalm 1, an unrighteous person does what? They disadvantage others so they can what? Advantage themselves, right? And this is the righteousness that's often talked about in the Old Testament. Well, it's a similar context here in Hebrews, but now it's through the lens of Christ. That's saying Christ has given you righteousness. He has bestowed righteousness upon you. So not only that you can learn and understand the gospel so that you can act out the implications of the gospel. You can act out the ethical and moral values of the gospel. And this is what the challenge is. It's saying church it's not happening. It's not happening. And so chapter six, he goes on with a challenge then. 
He says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about ritual rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. And so he's saying, you guys know the basic tenets of the faith already. You know what repentance looks like, turning from your sin. You, you know what faith looks like to trust in God. You, you've experienced the power of baptism. You're actually, you know what prayer is. You know that there's a future hope. But he's saying, none of the implications of these things are being lived out in your life. None of the implications are actually being lived out in your life. In other words, they're not exercising spiritual disciplines. They're not exercising a missional aspect. They're not practicing daily repentance. They're not understanding what their baptism points to in the proclamation of the gospel. They're, they're not realizing the future hope and working for the kingdom of God and having kingdom values and being kingdom citizens. They're losing sight of all of this. And so now he has this major challenge in verses 4 to 8. He says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, who have tasted the beauty and joy of knowing God, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace a land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those whom its farmed receives the blessing of God but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed in the end it will be burned and, and so there's a warning passage here now, we're outside, so we get this imagery right away. When we've experienced all this rain, what does it produce? It produces growth and greenery and beauty and flowers and crop, right? There's something beautiful that comes out of it. When you're out in a desert field with no water, what do you have? Nothing. Nothing. And so he's building this illustration to parallel with our spiritual lives. That, that if we don't receive the rain washing over us and indwelling us, and, and in this context, he's heavily referring to the necessity of the word of God, to hear the word of God. Again, back to Psalm 1, a planted tree by the stream of water produces fruitfulness, right? In other words, it transforms your life into something of beauty. But if you're not in... in engage with the word of God and you're not being quenched by the word of God and it's not life flowing through you, what's it going to produce? It's going to produce nothing of value, of no goodness. And the warning is, if you have tasted, if you have experienced the beauty of God, you cannot turn from it. You cannot reject it. 
And so he brings this concept up that's pretty heavy theologically, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail right now, but if you want to talk to me about it later, you can. But this whole concept of, well, what do we do with the people that have walked a path with Jesus and then all of a sudden walked off that path and rejected him and crucified him all over, as this passage says? What are we supposed to do with them? How do we understand that in our own lives? How do we understand the danger even of our own lives walking down this path? Because believe it or not, a lot of us are closer to walking down this path than we realize. And it's only by the grace of God that we even have a hope of staying on that path. And my, my sister, I'll bring up her as an example of this as well, because I don't think any of us know where the ultimate trajectory of our lives are going to go, especially judging other people's spiritual journey, right? Who knows where everyone else around you, where their spiritual journey is? We don't know, right? We trust God to know, but none of us have those answers. And so we can make assumptions, we can make guesses, but at the end of the day, none of us truly know what's going to happen. And so even though this passage gives us this warning, it warns us of the path that is walking upon. It warns us of the trajectory that a spiritual dehydration can lead to. We still don't know. And so we can't lose hope for anyone. Amen? We can't lose hope for anyone. And my sister's an example... I'm not going to get emotional. I have sunglasses to hide my tears anyway. <laughs> but my sister walked away from the faith for a while as well, for many years. And uh, we didn't know if there was any chance that she'd come back. We didn't know what the circumstances would be. Um, I had many deep existential theological conversations with her about many issues that she was facing and dealing with. But I didn't know if there'd be any hope. And then the night before my dad passed away, actually, she sort of had this crisis in her mind in the middle of the night and began to cry out to God and committed her life to Christ the night before my dad passed. And it came out of the blue. And I realized, you know what? I'm sure the conversations I had with her prepped her for that. But at the end of the day, it was just God drawing her to that point where I don't think we can give up on anyone. We can't answer the question of where the path leads. And so even a lot of our family or friends that we know have walked away from the faith, I don't think we can ever lose hope of what God is able to accomplish in reaching to them. We simply give them a warning like this. And so this is the next section. It says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, and it's pretty harsh language when you really get into the depths of it. It's very, it's a strong warning. It's a strong warning saying you either can choose life with God or without God. And a life with God is full of beauty and rain and abundance and joy. And a life with God is a desert barren wasteland that leads to death. So he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced 
of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. Because God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And so here's the beauty here. Here's the hope that we have. This, this is the, the concept that I think is the most inspirational and the most encouraging in this passage. He, he gives all these warnings about falling away from Christ. He gives all these warnings about what it will produce in your life and the life of others. And then he says, but do you know what's going to prevent all this? He says, first of all, there's a lot of grace with God. Amen, church? Verse 10, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It, it gives the writer that some confidence that after all these people had struggled through life and struggled with faith and struggled with doubt and struggled with seeing those walk away, the thing that remains is that there's going to be no lack of God's grace in our life. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Amen, church? That is our hope. That is our hope. And then he says, you know what? If there's this much grace, there's always going to be hope. If there's this much grace, there's always going to be something to fall back on. And so he says, with this then, persevere. Don't be lazy. Be diligent. Persevere. See, I think the, the, the struggle a lot of us have is many of us are, are afraid to step out and do something difficult or hard because we have a fear of failure. Anyone have a fear of failure here? <laughs> At least a minor one. It often prevents us from stepping out and doing something profound. It, it keeps us from stepping out and do something challenging. It keeps us from a lot of things. And I think even in our spiritual journey, we almost have a fear of failure sometimes that when we go exercise or do something, if, if we fail or if we have a potential of fail, we just won't do it, right? And so I'm sure you could think of a bunch of examples right now. You probably had one week where you said, I'm going to read the Bible every morning this week. And did it work out very well? Probably not. And you say, well, the next week, I'm going to do it. Oh, wait a second. I failed last week, so what's the point? Or I'm going to share the gospel with that person. But you know what? Last time I talked to them, they rejected me pretty harshly. And so this time, I'm not going to do it. Or, or maybe there's some sin that you have to confess in your life, and you, you succumb to temptation, then you... You say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore than the next time you do it. And you're like, oh, I failed again. And you know what? We lose diligence. We become lazy in our fear. But again, the, the beauty that we see here is God's grace is so profound that even in the midst 
of our failures and laziness and perseverance, God's grace and mercy will always be there for us. That's why Jesus is so much greater than any unbelief we have. Jesus is so much greater than any failure we experience in this life. Jesus is so much greater than any doubt we go through. Jesus is so much greater than any difficult circumstances we could ever comprehend. And so I don't know what your spiritual journey is like right now. For some of you, that the challenge of this text is going to be, you need to grow up and mature. <laughs> and some of you have, have been maybe a part of the church or in the church for a lot of years. And as the te text says, you should be teachers at this point. You should be discipling and leading others and engaging others and, and answering a lot of the challenges to faith that our culture has. And yet you're not equipped at all. And the, the response isn't, well, I'm not equipped, so I can't do anything about it. That's a fear of failure mentality. This text says what you can do is start eating solid food. Start studying the word, start engaging with the challenges of our culture, start engaging with the questions that they face. Mature so that you can actually produce fruitfulness. Now, some other use the, the context of challenge might be this. You may be at a point where your doubts, your struggles, your hardship, your crises, are leading you farther away from God. And you're asking the question, is, is Jesus really as good and great as he says he is? And the challenge of this text is, you know what? You're only going to experience the, the beauty when you push into it. If you just have a surface level relationship with Jesus, you will never experience the greatness and beauty that he has to offer. You will never experience the life that he has called you to. It's only through complete obedience, a complete relationship where he truly becomes the greatest pursuit of your life. That's only then when you experience the beauty of all that God has to offer you. And so, I, again, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're someone who needs to be on either of those perspectives, but the hope for all of us is, is the grace of God is there. And God is patient with you. God is kind. God is merciful. He doesn't call us to maturity like a father who, who just wants you to mature so he has less to deal with. <laughs> he calls us as a loving father, a good father, as we sung about, who wants to see the full potential of his children. Who wants to see the beauty of all they can become and all they can do. And that's the heart of the Father that calls us here this morning. And so I'm going to call up the team and we're going to, we're going to sing a song together called Build My Life. And, and it's a song which, which reminds us of, first of all, the worthiness of who God is, the greatness of who Jesus is. And the calling we have as his children, as his people, to build everything, all aspect of our lives, around who he is 
and what he has done for us. And so I'm going to pray for that. Please bow with me in prayer. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, I'm sure many of us need a new perspective on who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we hear this call to maturity, this call to perseverance, Lord, that our motivation wouldn't come out of guilt or shame, that our motivation wouldn't be focused on our flaws and our failures, but that our motivation would come when we recognize the beauty and greatness of who you are and the calling of beauty and greatness that you desire in us. That you come to us as a father who loves us and cares for us. But a father who just as sees the need for an infant to move past milk. Lord, you see the need for us and our well-being to move into maturity. And Lord, we know that comes from your word. That comes from hearing you. That comes from experiencing you. That comes from lives of obedience. And so we pray Lord, that you would help us build our lives upon what you desire for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.